Today's guest is Kevin Kelton. Kevin is a former writer for Saturday Night Live, including sketches for Eddie Murphy and Jim Belushi. He also wrote for Night Court, Boy Meets World, and many other TV series. Kevin currently teaches screenwriting at UCLA and hosts a weekly political podcast, The More Perfect Union, along with some debating groups on Facebook. I really enjoyed this interview that went all the way back to the early days of the Comedy Store and much, much more. I bring you Kevin Kelton. My name is Eric Hundley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Hey, thanks for coming on, Kevin. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this interview because you have such a varied career. From what I understand, you started up as a stand-up comic, went from there to writing on game shows. I'm kind of interested in that as well. And then from there, you went to sketch. Right. And from sketch to sitcoms. Right. And I think Jimmy Kimmel actually went a similar route. He wrote for game shows and then this is before the man show. I did not know that. Okay. So it is not an uncommon path? Well, it is an uncommon path, but everybody's path in the entertainment industry is unique in some some way. So the way I got into this is my brother is a stand-up comedian, and he started doing stand-up in the 1970s when I was in college. And his contemporaries at the time, I mean, he started in the mid-70s. Freddie Prinze was still alive. Uh, Gabe Kaplan was the big star then. Jimmy Walker was the big star then. And uh, his contemporaries were Jay Leno and Larry David and David Letterman and Tom Dreesen. And I can mention other names, not quite as famous, but they're famous within the comedy world. And when I was in college and Bobby was maybe a year or so into his career and he had just moved from L.A. back to New York to get more stage time. And when I was off from school, I would hang out with him and go to the comedy clubs in New York, watching him do his sets sitting in the back watching the other comics do their sets, getting a couple of free Coca-Colas, and then hanging out with the comics after the clubs all closed down. Um, what you know, this, what you saw on Seinfeld Monks was really a place called the Green Kitchen, and it's where all the comics would hang out after Catch a Rising Star closed at 2 or 3 in the morning. So what um, was that like? I'm really curious of that time, because like everybody knows about Jay Leno and his late-night wars with um, David Letterman. But from what I have read and heard at that time, he was a killer, possibly the best comic on the scene. Well, you're, you're going to hear the same from me. It's true. He was um, he was considered he and I'd say uh, Richard Pryor at that time were considered the best guys working in the clubs. Now, there were other guys who were great, like Carlin and Klein and a few others, but they weren't really comedy club comics. They were already, you know, doing great big shows all over the country. Pryor still worked the clubs a little bit, even though he was a huge name. But yes, Leno was considered among the best performers uh, in the comedy club circuit. Um, and yeah, he would kill every night. And I, I watched him, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of times, because I was hanging out in those clubs. And then a little later, after I graduated college and moved out to Los Angeles, I got a job as a uh, as a doorman at the comedy store. And so I would be there seven hours a night watching these shows. Oh, wow. So you knew Mitzi and everyone. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I worked for Mitzi. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Because I believe you wound up working on a Jay Leno show at one time. Oh, yeah. That was many years later. But um, so I, I was hanging out with Bobby and learning to write comedy by helping him write his act and seeing the other comics work on their stuff. And then just before I graduated college, it occurred to me that instead of getting a real job, I wanted to try my hand at comedy writing. Uh, so I moved out to L.A., figured this was going to be my gap year, that I was going to move out to L.A., try to make it as a comedy writer, and then I was going back to New York to get a real job. Um, well, So my gap year turned into about 45 and still counting. Ah. But uh, <laughs> um, So I, I, uh, I moved out here was selling jokes to comics, not making a lot of money at it, but I sold some jokes to Joan Rivers. I sold a joke or two to Tom Dreesen, a couple of other people. Came close to selling some material to Letterman, but we couldn't agree on price. 
And I was doing stand-up at the time. But, you know, because Bobby was already, at that point, he was doing the Carson show and all of the talk shows. So he was the celebrity in our family. And I knew I was going to never catch up to him. So I thought, I'll do stand-up to showcase my material. But mostly, I knew that my strength was really in the writing, writing area. So I was showcasing my material. And uh, that led me to my first TV job, which was on a game show called Face the Music. And from there, I got into sketch comedy and did uh, many years of that, including uh, a Jay Leno special later in my sketch comedy run, and then segued into half-hour comedies, what are traditionally now called sitcoms. Now, you're talking about doing stand-up, I guess, to showcase your comedy. What I'm wondering is, did you, in fact, prefer comedy writing versus stand-up? I know you said your brother kind of overshadowed. Yeah, and it's not that I was nervous as a performer. I just kind of saw my limitations in it. Um, it's interesting because I'm a shy person. If I was at a party, I might be, you know, standing on the wall watching everybody else. But if I had to go on stage, I was just able to do it. Maybe because I learned from my brother how to do it. Um, so it wasn't that I, I didn't feel like I was, you know, I, I didn't really think that I was going to grow much as a comedian because I just didn't feel that I had a, a comic persona in me. But I did enjoy the writing, and I did seem to be able to come up with good one-liners. Did performing your material help sharpen your writing? And I ask this because some of the authors that I interview actually will read their books out loud as they are writing. Because speaking lines or text is obviously very, very different than writing lines or text. They don't flow as easily. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And any stand-up who's ever gone into writing would tell you that. Yeah. To perform a line and feel the laughter come out or feel when it doesn't happen, you know, is it's like getting into a boxing ring and getting hit. You learn how to defend yourself. <laughs> and it's the same thing. When you've dropped a line and you've bombed with a line or you've bombed in a set, you don't want to do that again. And you learn how to protect yourself. So, yes. So, you do recommend doing that for upcoming oh, writers? yeah. Oh, yeah. Or improv, which... I only I, I dabbled in improv. I mean, really very limited, but it's a great skill to have for writing. Yeah. I guess one could say that at its core, Saturday Night Live is improv. No, Saturday Night Live at its core is sketch comedy that is written. Uh, some of the people came out of improv, but there's nothing about SNL that is, is improvisational. Ooh, let's put a pin in that. I definitely want to go back to that. I have a question. Okay. But the game show writing, is that kind of like Hollywood Squares where they would have the different stars show up and wisecrack at the contestants in the show? How does game show comedy work? Well, it's a good question, and it depends on the game show. I'm smiling because actually one of the people that I met on that, that job, my first TV job, was a former Hollywood Squares writer named Phil Kellard. Great guy. I still see him occasionally now because we both teach at UCLA Extension in their writing program. But I was so awestruck that I was meeting a, 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 a Hollywood Squares writer <laughs> back then. To me, that was the height of the industry. Um, what we did on this game show, it was called Face the Music. It was kind of a knockoff of Name That Tune. It was produced by the same company. Mm -hmm. And what this game was, was they would play songs and the, the contestant had to guess the song title. And then the song titles were part of a puzzle. Mm. So it was a second layer to, you know, name that tune. And we had to write the puzzles using real song titles. And they had to describe a famous person, a famous place, or, you know, a very common object that you might have in your home. And it sounds kind of easy, except we had to use only the we, – we were very limited in – um the selection of songs we could use, we only had certain labels and certain publishing houses that we could use. And then they had to be songs that people could guess. So that limited it even more because there's nothing worse than playing an entire song and seeing two contestants just shaking their heads going, I have no idea. So you wanted them to guess the titles. So we had, you know, only a few hundred titles to choose from. And once you've described like the, the the most famous 100 people in the world and the most famous 50 places, it's really hard to do that. But that was what we were tasked with doing. Well, how long did that go? It would seem like it would um, run its course. Well, you know, the, the show lasted a couple of seasons. 
I did the full first season, and then we went on a hiatus. Then they brought me back. And in the middle of that season, I got offered a job on a TV show called Fridays, uh, which was a Saturday Night Live knockoff that was on in uh, 1980, 81, 82. And so I left that show to do Fridays. And the head writer of the of the game show, Face the Music, told me that um, when he, you know, I went in and I gave two weeks notice. I said, listen, I've got another job. I'm going on. And they shook their head and said, okay. And then when I left, they called in the head writer and said, listen, we want to keep Kevin on because he does a decent job for us. Um, they were paying me like $300 a week. And they said, you, th- you think if we gave him another $50 a week, he'd stay here? And the head writer told me this story. He told me that he said to them, you don't understand. He's working on a network comedy show. He's going to be getting paid $1,000 a week. He's getting three times that. And he said their jaws dropped. (laughs) They couldn't envision a world where Kevin Kelton was worth $1,000 a week. Now, let's put that in perspective. That's $50,000 a year. It's not a lot of money. But they didn't think I was worth that. (laughs) <laughs> Back then, it was pretty good money. Back then, it was it was good money for a kid, yeah. How old were you at this time? Uh, I moved out to L.A. just shy of my 22nd birthday. I think I was 23 or 24 when all this was going on. Yeah, well, I, I worked in the 80s, and I would be quite happy with $1,000 a week. Oh, I was pretty happy. <laughs> I thought I was, I was hot stuff, yeah. <laughs> and plus, from what I understand, you were, well, I guess kind of a geek in the room. You were responsible, didn't do drugs, and saved all your money. That's right. Yeah. It was it was a very good writing staff on Fridays, but it was a drug fest. And <laughs> I, I won't mention any names, but some of the best writers uh, who I was envious of because they got so much material on the show, but they were doing anything that they could get their hands on. And, you know, it's mind expanding. The problem is, is that you get a lifetime addiction and then, you know, and you probably die early. But um, but the the flip side of that coin is it makes you a lot more creative. <laughs> so, yes, I was working at a handicap. Yeah, that's kind of hard to say, though, isn't it? Because isn't there a point where the creativity starts to get lost and now it's just a drug habit? Well, depending on the individual. And again, since I never really did it, um, I don't know that much about it. Obviously, I don't know the experience of being a drug addicted writer. But um, you know, there are rumors that George Carlin was smoking weed and doing other things until he he passed at a respectable age. Um, so some people were able to do it. Now, again, by the way, I don't know whether that's true or not. Those are just rumors that have been told. Um, obviously, other people like Richard Pryor had caught up with him. Uh, Freddie Prinze had caught up with him in a big way. Um, so, you know, as a father now, I'm not a proponent of drugs, but um, uh, it did help some people. Yeah. Well, I I think that kind of affected later choices, and I know I'm bouncing around here. But from what I understand from another interview, you kind of didn't want to be the adult in the room. Is that correct? Um, well, you know, I was always considered straight-laced even before I got into writing. In fact, when I first moved out to L.A., I was a bank teller for six months. That was my day job. Hmm. And, you know, whenever there was a shortage in, on one of the tills, it was like the head teller said, well, it's not Kevin. Kevin would never take the money. <laughs> and I never understood why they thought this way about me. But I just happened to be a straight and narrow guy. <laughs> the shame of being honest. Yeah. <laughs> what a stigma. But from what I understand, too, uh, Jay Leno was also very straight-laced. Oh, yes. Jay is a terrific guy. And by the way, the, the stuff – now, I don't have any insight into what went down between him and Letterman. I've read the same stuff that you did. It's probably not as serious. I mean, they don't they don't socialize, and they, they probably right. don't talk to each other. But I don't think it's this – giant feud that maybe the media has made it out to be. It might have been at some brief point when Jay got the Tonight Show. Um, But no, Jay was a terrific guy. He is a terrific guy. Uh, When I worked with him, he was a great person to work for. And um, yeah, uh, you know, he deserved all the success he got. Now, I was more of a Letterman fan of the two shows. I would watch Dave's show over Jay's show because I thought it was a little edgier. But that's, you know, to each their own. Yeah, and that's kind of why I brought Jay up as well, because uh, his stand-up was... Was much edgier. 
Yes, and I, I think even yeah. edgier than uh, Letterman's. And this is almost a night and day comparison to his persona on the night, Tonight Show. Well, that's interesting. They were both edgy stand-ups in the clubs. They were both considered daring. But Jay just had volumes of material and just knew how to how to work an audience. And there was just an energy in watching him on stage. Uh, we all learned a lot from Jay Leno. Uh, and when I say we, I'm talking about even Jerry Seinfeld and and – Bill Maher, I mean, and you could go down the line. They all worship at the feet of Jay Leno. Who are some lesser known comedians that you think should really be brought out front that you have watched and seen over the years? Well, I'm going to, that's a great question. And there are people like that at every generation of comic, but I'm going to talk about the generation that I came up in. Uh, these names won't mean anything to you. Maybe a few people who are comedy geeks might recognize some of them. George Miller was very funny. Now, he passed away uh, at a relatively young age, 62 or 64, uh, a decade or two back. Um, but he was very funny. Ed Bluestone was a stand-up comedian who was famous for having worked at National Lampoon and coming up with the famous National Lampoon cover of the dog – uh, excuse me, of the dog with a gun oh, to his head kill the dog. that said, if you know, buy this <laughs> magazine or we'll shoot this dog. That was Ed Bluestone's idea. He had great material and everybody would watch this guy and think he's going to be a star. There was another guy in the clubs back then, Bob Shaw. He was sort of like um, a la latter day George Carlin. And everybody thought this guy was going to be a mega star. And they went on TV and they did a shot or two on Carson and it just never happened. And there's several others like that. Speaking of which, there's a really awesome book written about the comedy store I read not that long ago. I can't remember the I'm name. I'm dying up here? That's it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Were you there during some of that time? I was there during pretty much all of that time. Well, I mean, I got there. I myself started working there in 78 or 79. So I missed the mid seventies, although I saw, like I said, a lot of it through my brother's eyes. Um, but I was there for the comedy strike, the stand up comedian strike. And I saw, you know, Sam Kennison's first time on a comedy store stage. I saw um, uh, Andrew Dice Clay's auditions at the comedy store. I saw Roseanne Barr's first few sets. Gary Shandling was a friend of mine when he was just a ham and agar. Uh, Bob Bob Saget, I used to hang out with when he was trying to break in, you know. So yeah, I saw a lot of these people coming through the doors and going out the other side, the good side. Since you were there for the strike, I'm guessing you were there for the unfortunate tragedy then. Yeah, I um, I wasn't technically a stand up then, although I dabbled in stand up. So I was working at the comedy store answering phones. And I wasn't considered by my peers to be a stand-up yet. I was still doing audition nights. But I was sympathetic to the strikers, so I would actually walk the picket lines, even though I wasn't technically uh, a comic in their eyes. Um, and uh, I was at the comedy store the day that Steve Lebetkin threw himself off the Hyatt house and, and, and died. Um yeah. Now, I don't remember having seen Steve Lebetkin in the clubs, although I probably did because he was there all the time and I was there all the time. I just don't remember him. I know my brother knew him fairly well. Um, I know some stories about him. Uh, he was a, you know, a troubled young man, uh, who had a lot of bad breaks. Uh, you just, his story would make an interesting movie because so much bad luck befell him. Um, but yeah, that was a tragedy. And, and there were a lot of things that went down that led to that. Some people blamed Mitzi for him. Well, uh, you know what? Why don't I tell the story since probably your listeners don't know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. Uh, Please uh, do, because I don't know how accurate the book is. Okay. All the material. So, so I actually researched this because I wrote a, uh, an article that I tried to get published. I was never able to get it published, but I wanted to get it published in one of the big magazines about the strike because I thought it was a fascinating, dramatic story. So basically what happened was um, in, in 1971-72, comedy clubs started to emerge. The first one that was really well-known in the 60s was the Improvisation Cafe in New York City. And then in the 70s, another club called Catch a Rising Star opened up in New York. Uh, 
and a few years later, a third one called The Comic Strip opened up. Well, in the meantime, on the West Coast, the Comedy Store, which had been owned by a stand-up comedian named Sammy Shaw, sure, um, he got divorced from Mitzi. Instead of paying her alimony, he gave her the club, and she grew it into this huge business. Now, that was because Carson moved out there, correct? Part part of it was, yes, that, that when the when the... The Tonight Show is in New York. They would go to Catch a Rising Star or The Improv to watch comics and to uh, uh, scout comics. When the show moved to the West Coast, the Comedy Store became the place to be seen to get on The Tonight Show. So the the comedy club business, uh, I was just writing about this a few days ago, was built on the business model of not paying the performers which is insane now, but back then it made sense because the owners wrote the rules. And at one point in 1978-79, comics like Tom Dreesen and Jay Leno and, and Letterman, Gallagher, who of course you've heard of, and a few others, um, they were sitting around at Cantor's, which is a deli uh, in Los Angeles one night after a show, And they had just filled the main room, which was a 400-plus seat room in the comedy store. Mitzi charged back then six or eight dollars cover plus a two-drink minimum. So she was making $20 or more per person. And they got nothing. And But every now and then, she would book what she called a headliner, like Rodney Dangerfield or um, Jackie Mason. And she would pay them. She would split the door with them. So these young comics were thinking, well, why does she split the door with those guys? We filled the same amount of seats. She charges the same amount of money. Why do they get paid and we don't? So Tom Dreesen and a few others went to Mitzi's office, and they basically laid out this logic for her. And she said, well, guys, no, 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 no. You don't understand. This isn't a nightclub. It's a comedy college. And my stage is your education. I am allowing you to learn your craft by working here. You don't have to work here, but you those people, me. yeah, but those people that work here are the ones that tend to get on the tonight show and have careers. This is a comedy college. You are all students. And Tom said, "Well, Mitzi, that's all well and good, but you know, you're making millions of dollars a year. We we know what you make. It's not hard to do the math. Look, the waitresses all get paid, the bartenders all get paid." The people that sell the tickets get paid. Hell, even the people that clean the toilets get paid. The only people that don't get paid are the people on stage, and they're the ones everyone's coming to see and paying money to see. And she just said, no, that's not the way it works. I hate to interrupt, but there is kind of a precursor to what she was saying. The NCAA makes quite a bit of money off of the athletes' backs going to universities. Okay, fair, fair. yes. A good analogy, yes. And But you know what? That's someday going to change, too. Well, let's hope. Yeah, but, um, but they actually are getting an education. That's the difference. They're getting scholarships to colleges. These people were getting nothing for it. Um, so anyways, the, the comedians formed a union. They went on strike. It lasted about six weeks, and it became very acrimonious because about 18 or 20 comics became, for lack of a better word, scabs. And the, they will say, hey, I would not have had a career without Mitzi. Mitzi was like a, a, a parent to me. I love this woman. She took a chance on me when I, you know, nobody else would. And they really felt felt a kinship to her, and they bought into the comedy college mentality. Now, if I remember correctly, both Leno and Letterman were not scabs. Correct. They were both uh, – they both uh, – Held out. Uh, yeah. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Honored the strike. Now, Jay was active. He was on the lines picketing and what have you. Dave, at that point, had already had a, a million-dollar network deal with NBC – I don't remember him show. He might have showed up at a meeting or two. I don't remember him picketing, but uh, actually, I, I have to revise that because there's a story that I heard. I didn't see this, but I heard this story afterwards. One night, Dave had hosted the Tonight Show. Now, this was the biggest thing that could happen to a young stand-up comic in that time to guest host for Johnny Carson, and Mitzi. Everybody watched it. 
It, it felt like, you know, one of your own, one of your fraternity friends had just, you know, won, you know, the Heisman Trophy. Mitzi watched it. She was thrilled. Uh, about an hour later, because, you know, they taped The Tonight Show early in the day. About an hour later, Mitzi is looking out of her window and she sees a black limousine pull up in front of the comedy store. Now, the comics are out there. They're picketing. And out of this black limousine comes Dave Letterman. And he picks up a sign and he joins the picketers. And and people have told me who were in the room with Mitzi that her heart was broken. It was like her son had done this to her. So that was the kind of emotion that was involved in this strike. Now, I'm going to go to the story of the person that you mentioned, Steve Lebetkin. Steve Lebetkin was an, a, a, a working comic, a regular at the comedy store, trying to get a break in the business. He had several misfortunes where he had a TV show appearance canceled at the last minute for whatever reason. Um, he couldn't, you know, he had financial difficulties and, but he was very passionate about the strike. And one night he was supposed to be working the comedy club in San Diego in La Jolla, uh, which was a paid gig and driving down there, his car broke down he was going to be a late. He called the club to say, "Hey, I'm going to be a few minutes late," and they told him on the payphone, uh, "Your your booking's been canceled. You're not working here anymore." And he assumed that was because he was one of the strikers. Um, he started to get very anxious that this was going to impact his career negatively because he needed the comedy store. And when the strike was resolved, he went to Tom Dreesen, who was the essentially the leader of the strikers, the president of the the comedians union that had been formed. And he said, Tom, she's, she's not booking me. I've been calling in now for a week or two and I haven't gotten a single spot. I used to get three spots a week. And Tom was getting ready to go to Vegas to, to open for somebody big. And he said, look, um, I got to go to Vegas. Uh, I can't deal with this now, but don't worry. We'll get this resolved because there's supposed to be a, a no retaliation clause in the agreement that she signed with the strikers. So, you know, Steve, you maybe she, maybe you just didn't get spots for a couple of weeks. But if this plays out, believe me, I'll step up. I mean, I will not go back to the comedy store until you go back to the comedy store. I promise you that. Well, Tom went and, and did his his work in Vegas, and while he was there, Steve got despondent, uh, wrote a note, a suicide note, pinned it to his jacket, went to the top of the twenty story Hyatt House, which is right next door to the comedy store, and jumped. And ended up dying between the Hyatt and the comedy store. Um, it was a devastating thing to happen in the comedy community. Like I said, I did not personally know Steve Lebetkin, but I knew people who knew him well, and they were all devastated. And Tom was so devastated that for decades, he honored that commitment to Steve not to go back to the comedy store. Oh, wow. And it's only in the last couple of years, I just read this recently, that there was some benefit or something. And as a gesture of goodwill and to, and to, and to close some of the, the scars, he went back and did a set there. But for decades, he would not step back in that club. I hope he made it back before Mitzi died. I think he did. I think he did, yeah. Wow. I kind of had the impression that that was sort of uh, the thing that marked a before and after. Sort of like comedy grew up. Well, the, first of all, that happened about three weeks after the end of the strike. So it was all a very condensed time frame. But the strike did leave some scars that remain today. I know there are certain people that still won't talk to certain people, certain people that won't go into the improv, other pe uh, into the comedy store, other people that won't go into the improv because Bud did cut a deal with the comics a little earlier in the strike. Um, and they felt that he had backstabbed Mitzi. There was so much intrigue. You know, the the, the improv um, was burned to the ground during the strike. You know, these were two competing clubs. And there were people who believe, and I'm one of them, that uh, there, it was a Molotov cocktail thrown by one of Mitzi's people that started that fire. So, I mean, the drama and the behind the scenes of this is just, it's so rich. I mean, it's amazing that nobody's done a movie on it. Well, there you go. That's a perfect podcast series, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Well, I just told the story, so. <laughs> well, you could break it down even further and expound upon it. Oh, yeah, I'd get the real people to talk about it, sure. That would be amazing, and I promise you, that would likely climb the charts. Interesting, okay. 
Did you continue hanging out there in the aftermath of everything that happened? Oh yeah, well that was that was literally just as I was beginning at the comedy store. I mean, I was answering phones soon after the strike ended. I was promoted to doorman slash MC, and uh, I worked there for about six months. During that time, I uh, got the job working on the game show. And after a while, I, you know, I couldn't work a full time day job and then stay up till two thirty three in the morning at the comedy store. Uh, so it was pretty obvious which one to give up. Great. Now I want to start looking at how things were done for the game show. There has to be a completely different formula. Well, again, this was just writing these puzzles. We did try to make them witty, but it wasn't writing comedy. It was just a job that I was in television making when I started $250 a week. And believe me, I was thrilled. I I couldn't believe that anybody was paying me $250 to write for television. Um, like I said, that led to my first sketch job on Fridays. And once I worked on Fridays, even though I was only there for uh, a 13 season, a 13 episode run, um, that opened the door for me because it was a great credit. And I started to get other sketch comedy jobs. I did a few other shows that led to Saturday night live. I did that for a couple of years, moved back to LA, did a few more sketch comedy shows, including the Jay Leno special. And uh, then it, I had worked on virtually every sketch show in the world. There wasn't enough work to support me in sketch, so I knew I had to get into sitcom. Good. I wanted to talk about that, too, because I feel like you haven't talked about sitcom quite as much in interviews. And one of the things you did talk about I thought was hilarious is, and I hope you cover it here, different people and what their titles actually mean. Right. You know, on a television sketch comedy show, there's a list of staff writers and they were all given the credit writer. Uh, once you get into sitcoms, you break in as maybe a, a staff writer or a story editor. That's the lowest rung on the, the ladder. But the jobs in half hour are tiered. So you go from story editor to executive story editor, to co-producer, to producer, to supervising producer, to co-executive producer, and then someday executive producer. But the reality of television is, all of those titles are just, they're, they're symbolic. There are two jobs on a television show. One of the executive producers, or maybe it's a team of two executive producers, are what we call showrunners. They are actually the CEOs of that show. So there are two jobs on, a, on the staff of a television writing staff. There's the showrunner and there's everyone else. And it doesn't matter whether you're a co-executive producer or you're a story editor once you're all in the room sitting around the table, you're all equals. Now, do they also throw around the credits as well, like an actor will become an executive producer, et cetera? Yes. The, the credits are used partly to compensate. Now, there are two ways that you could compensate a writer. One is with money, and another is with a, a better credit. Now, the companies being stingy want to pay as little money as they can, so they'll use a mixture of credits and money to entice writers to stay on year after year. And of course, the agents use that, that to build your career. Wow, he started as a story editor. Now he's a co-executive producer. He's ready to be a showrunner. So it's, it's just like going from, you know, the manager of a company to a, a, a junior VP, to a senior VP, to an executive VP. In a resume, sure. And then you're the CEO someday, yeah. I also was wondering, especially with the reputation of, of many actors being brilliant to where everything coming out of them, every syllable is pure hilarity. How much of it is actually coming from the actors themselves and how much is coming from the writer's room? Uh, I'd say 90% writer's room, 10% performers, give or take. It's going to obviously differ depending on the cast. For instance, Michael Richards... Uh, when I worked on Fridays, you know, he would come up with an idea and you'd sit there and just almost be taking notes because he would come up with so much stuff. And it was so original to Michael that very few people could get into that, that headspace. Uh, Eddie Murphy, uh, was similar. Although I wrote some Eddie Murphy sketches without working with Eddie, I just wrote him, handed him in, and he did them verbatim. He did not change the words. But I do know other writers who worked with him and they would kind of hammer out a sketch together. 
based on some nugget of an idea that Eddie had for a character. I was specifically wondering about Eddie Murphy because he is a brilliant stand-up as well. Yeah. Obviously, he has a creative mind unless he bought all of his jokes. I don't know. No, 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 no. He has a creative mind. There's no doubt about it. But the, all, everybody in the cast has a creative mind. Very few people can ad-lib a sketch. It's, you know, it's an illusion that television creates that makes people think, oh, they're making this up as they go along. They don't. You know, if you watch a State of the Union address or you watch an inaugural address, it's written. They don't just make these things up, you know. Well, it's the same thing. Um, I wrote, you know, a couple of Mr. Robinson sketches. I wrote a Buckwheat sketch. I wrote a couple of other sketches that Eddie appeared in. Uh, he did the lines. Now, he was great to write for because he made your lines better. But he didn't go on set and start going, no, I don't want to say this. I want to say that. He he did what was written for him. And, and, and again, and that's the job. Now, from sketch, you went into sitcoms. And from what I understand, you had to kind of fight for it a little bit. It didn't come as easily. It, it took a little longer for me than other people um, because I was pigeonholed as a sketch comedy writer. And agents would tell me that they couldn't sell me as a half-hour writer, even though I had written sample, you know, scripts for different shows. Uh, until one agent finally did the the hard grunt work to make it happen. Isn't that kind of a problem within the industry, though, that everyone will get pigeonholed if they're not careful? Oh, sure, oh, sure, and and that's true with actors too, and that's why you know you'll see an actor uh, who does one kind type of work you know, move so dramatically to a different type of, of character or a different type of movie because they don't want to get pigeonholed and they want to expand their, their resume. Very true of writers as well. And by the way, you may or may not be aware of this. There's a big work stoppage. Uh, that's the wrong word. There's a sort of strike going on in the, the industry right now where the Writers Guild has asked its writers to fire all of their agents. And and a large, large percentage of them have. It has to do with the fact that agents, there used to be that you had 10 clients and you would sell those people and you would get 10% of each one's salary and you had a whole salary. And that was the job of being an agent. Uh, at a certain point, they got into what is called packaging, which is uh, putting together the elements of a television show or a movie. And then they would get not only the commissions, but a packaging fee. And the agencies realized that they could make more money off of packaging fees than they could off of straight commissions. And their business model changed to make them more producers than agents. And some of the writers started to realize that their their deals were getting watered down because instead of the agents being their advocates, the agents were on the other side of the desk. They were the people that were managing the budgets and trying to keep the budget as low as possible. And so it was actually hurting the income of writers. And they tried to work this out, uh, the Writers Guild and the Alliance of Agencies, and they couldn't come to an agreement. And about a few months ago, the Writers Guild voted to um, to fire their right, their agents. And and they did. And it's, it's a massive uh, industry battle going on right now that's playing out in front of our eyes. I know most of the public doesn't know about it, but in Los Angeles, it's it's fairly high high visibility. That's really interesting. Isn't there another problem with agents, though, that at one time they had to hustle to go find their clients' work, but as of late, actors or performers are required to have their own social presence, etc., find the work and then tell their agent, hey, hey go get me booked on that gig. Yeah, that, that became a, a problem more like uh, 20 years ago. Um, so, But this has only exacerbated it. The agencies, again, they found that there, it took a lot of effort to find, to scout for talent, find young talent, and build careers. It was much easier to go and steal a client from another agent and then you already had someone with a career and they were easier to sell. So the agencies don't spend a whole lot of time developing young talent. Now, one would say, hey, you know, if you stop the pipeline, eventually 
the, the, the people who are really good are going to die and you're not going to have a stable of young people. They don't seem to see it that way. It sounds almost as if they were trying to replicate the old studio system with them actually building up their own stables of actors and talent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, that's what they've done with this packaging. Now they rely on their, their best clients to be able to close deals with Netflix or ABC or HBO. And they'll, they'll take that writer or that writer's script, you know, add a couple of, uh, actors and actresses to it, maybe add a director, maybe add some other writers to the writing staff. They package it, and they're essentially, they're co-producers of this, and they're getting a big royalty for the show, especially if it runs for a while. And it's changed the dynamic of the business, not for the better. Listen, I'm a big fan of unions in in America. I think some people who who maybe don't have my uh, my wrinkles and my gray hair don't know the history of unionism in the United States. But believe me, any company that can find a way to make money off the backs of people working for them will do it. And writers, not only are no exception, we are usually right there in the bullseye of that target in the entertainment industry. And you need a strong union to protect your rights. Otherwise, no one's doing you any favors. They will take advantage of you left, right, and center. I hate to say it. It's almost a fiduciary responsibility for them to take advantage and yeah, gain well, for their... At a cert- well, the, the problem is it's a conflict of interest. They have dual douche, uh, fiduciary responsibilities. Yeah. Mm, that, that definitely does factor in. Now, on to the writing. Did you do film at all? Were you primarily or strictly television? I wrote some screenplays, uh, uh, several on spec, which means you write it yourself and then try to market it, and uh, was hired once or twice to rewrite scripts that uh, were in development but ended up not getting made. So I never had a film made, although I did sell a script called Devil's Advocate, which was a comedy about someone dying and then, you know, going to purgatory and having to defend someone else's case to get himself into heaven. And years later, Warner Brothers, who had optioned my script, put out a drama called Devil's Advocate, which was a very similar premise. And there was some question as to whether my script might have been source material, but I never did anything about it because my agents told me, listen, you could sue them, and if you get lucky, you might settle for fifty or $75,000, and you'll never work for Warner Brothers again. It's not worth it. Yeah, or anybody else, because you'd be known trouble. Right, right, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask that, because I've been of the understanding that in movies, the writers don't have as good a time of it as in... In television, yeah. Yeah, for some reason, uh, and I think it's because television by its very structure, needs material. You you create a series, you put it on the air. It used to be you needed 24 episodes a season. Now with Netflix and Amazon, the seasons can be, you know, the orders can be eight episodes or 12 episodes, but still it's driven by material. And generally the person who created that pilot, who wrote the script, who created the characters, who created the the tone and the nuance of the series, they're so valuable because not everybody can duplicate that. That at some point, and I don't know whether this was in the 50s or 60s or or maybe 1970, but at some point, the networks realized we might as well just put this person in charge because nobody knows the show better than he or her. And of course, Norman Lear was one of the early, you know, moguls of television but uh, that's when the showrunners became really powerful. And that's why Phil Rosenthal can pretty much gallivant around the world and do uh, whatever he wants. He made a lot of money. And I'll tell you a story about Phil Rosenthal. Um, my ex-wife is a development person. Uh, and when we were married, well, she's now a, a manager of, of writers and talent. But uh, when we were married, she was working in development for uh, a subsidiary of HBO. And her boss used to be college roommates with um, uh, Morty, who was the executive producer, Robert Morton, who was the at the time the executive producer of the David Letterman show. So she was the second in command at her boss's company. 
And she was on the phone talking to the second-in-command at David Letterman's Worldwide Pants Company. And they were saying, you know, my my boss, Stu, and, and your boss, Robert Morton, Morty, they're best friends. They've been friends since college. Why aren't they in business together? And these two relatively low-level people hatched up a plan. They said, well, you know, Stu, who my ex-wife worked for, had just done a series of comedy specials for Showtime, and one of the people that had done it was um, uh, Ray Romano. He had done a half-hour special, and they had him, a part of that deal was they could try to package him into a sitcom. Now, Worldwide Pants had a deal, a production deal with CBS that they could bring talent to CBS and package a deal. So these two low-level underlings hatched up a plan. They said, why don't we put together Ray Romano with Worldwide Pants, take it to CBS, and try to package a show. CBS went for it. They said, find us a writer. And it was my wife at the time, my ex-wife now, her job to put together a list of writers, and one of them was Phil Rosenthal, who got the job, and that led to Everybody Loves Raymond. I was at the pilot taping of Everybody Loves Raymond. That is so cool. Phil seems like he's a really decent guy. I don't know him. I only met him that night, but I've only heard good things. Now, I want to close out on a show that I loved. I haven't watched it for like 20 years, but as a teenager, loved that show. Night Court. Yeah. I worked on that uh, toward the, the end of the run, the last couple of seasons. So how did you get into that, and what was that like? Well, uh, I had broken into sitcoms in 1987 on a short-lived Fox show. Then I worked on a very short-lived CBS show, did a couple of other shows, one at NBC. Then I got onto a show called A Different World on NBC and did a, a season or so there. And in in this business, you would work on a show for a season – and if they offered you, you know, to pick you up, you might go back there for a second, a third, or a fourth season. But sometimes you were kind of like an independent contractor. You do a season here, your contract would come to an end, and you'd go on to whatever other show you could get. So I was up for a few shows. Uh, Night Court was one of them. They read my material. I went in and interviewed with the executive producers, the showrunners. They hired me, so there I was. So what was that like? I mean, I remember God, John Littlecat, he's just hilarious. Harry Anderson, Marky Post, I had the biggest crush on. They were so talented. Yeah, yeah, they sure were, and very nice people too. So John Larroquette was, again, one of those people. He always made your material better. There were just some performers who you hope that the material comes out as good when they say it as it was on paper, and there were other people that could take material on paper and just bring it to life and make it better. Eddie was one of those people. Billy Crystal, Marty Short was one of those people. And certainly John Larroquette was one of those people. And so everybody loved writing storylines that had John in him because he always delivered. Now, Harry, from what I remember, was he a magician beforehand? He was a comedy magician. He was a very competent and skilled magician who was one of the first magicians to do it from a stand-up comedy standpoint. And he was on SNL and did a lot of other shows before he got Night Court. And he was a very funny guy and he did really good comedy. Yeah. And of course, Marky Post at the time was possibly the sexiest person alive. She was pretty hot and incredibly sweet and nice to everybody. In fact, um, I'm looking right now on my desk. I have a mug that has a photo of me and Marky standing together. And on the other side of the mug, it says, here, I'll even hold it up so you can see it. And on the other side of the mug, it says, don't tell anyone, but you're my favorite writer. And she gave one of these to every writer on staff. <laughs> That's perfect. So, <laughs> but she was she was just lovely, fun to work with. Didn't quite have the comedy chops as the guys did, but she served a, a very important role in that. You know, a, a cast, every person is filling a different part of, of a whole. And she filled the part that she was required to play as well as anyone could. And, of course, there was one more, Marsha Warfield. Marsha, yeah, was very funny. Yeah, Doesn't that lead back to the comedy store for you? Uh, I knew her from the comedy store. I didn't know her. I mean, I saw her there. She saw me. I don't, I don't even know whether she knew my name back then. I probably brought her on stage a few times. But uh, she was stand-up, and then she got hired to play Roz after Selma Diamond passed away. 
Um, there were actually two women that passed away who were in that role. And then they brought on um, Marsha to play Roz. And she was extremely funny in that role and did a great job. And also wonderful to work with. And by the way, my ex-wife represents her. So <laughs> it's a small world. <laughs> it is. I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't realize that that show went on for nine seasons. Yes. Eight and a half, to be exact. Yes. So to close out, I know you did sitcoms with uh, Boy Meets World. Yep, yep. And then you kind of... Did a couple of more shows. One called Something So Right on NBC. Another one called The Tom Show, which featured Tom Arnold for the... the uh, Warner, what was the Warner Channel? I forget whatever they were called. WB? Um, the, yeah, the, the WB. Thank you. Um, and uh, did did some uh, freelance writing for a while, then worked on another show that was called The Wrong Coast, and it was supposed to run on AMC, and then there were some contractual things. We produced all of these shows. They never actually ran, and then they hired somebody else to do the same series. Um, and then in the early 2000s, I wrote some articles for National Lampoon. That was more of just a, a side fun thing that I did. Did you ever find and, those, by the way? Sorry to interrupt, but did you ever find the articles? Um, I have copies of them that are on one of my own sites. But uh, National Lampoon, they took them off the servers. And it really bugs me because you want to have your best work available for people to find on Google. Um, so, no, those articles are, can only be found if you know where to look for them. But... Uh, but if anybody wants them, just, uh, you know, find me online and I'll send you links. Um, and, uh, yeah, I really liked a couple of things that I wrote for them. Um, and, but I kind of saw that my, my TV writing career was, was ebbing a little bit. It's tough when you're a writer in your forties and fifties to continue to string along jobs. And I wanted to try other things. So I got a job working on a dot com, uh, in the Silicon Valley as a producer creating um, virtual worlds for them. Uh, I, I didn't have the technical skills, but I came up with ideas, and then I worked with the tech people to execute these things. And then landed a job in the corporate world writing compliance programs, online training programs, for some of the largest companies in the world. So it's your fault. It is my fault. Those things that you have to take <laughs> once a year at your company, people like me write them and produce them. You know what's funny is that Second City is involved with them now. I did not know that, but I'm not surprised because what happened was this was, a, a, you know, a young industry when I got into it, and they were just realizing that they had to compete with everything else on the web, which was fairly entertaining, and they were just putting like pa pages and pages of legal <laughs> documents into these courses. And of course, people were, wanted to shoot themselves or hang themselves before they wanted to take one of them. So when I went into to interview to be one of the writers at this company, and they heard about my background, and they said, well, you know, we've been struggling to make these courses more ent entertaining and interactive. Maybe we should make you the head writer, and maybe you could work with the rest of the writers to make it more interesting. And I spent five years doing that and then did it for a couple of other companies as well. Well, also, I'm thinking that you might have actually enjoyed it because they might have been like nine to five gigs and not brutal long hours like in the writing room. Well, you've either heard me talk about this before or you're a mind reader because that's exactly right. Um, I had put my money away. I still did have kids. And I was getting divorced. I, I was married when I got the job, but I ended up getting divorced. And so, you know, it was nice to have some income. And, uh, but what I found was because as we established at the beginning of the podcast, I'm a fairly straight laced guy. I'm not really a wild and crazy Los Angelino type. Uh, I fit into the corporate world fairly well. And it was a very comfortable, um, rebrand for me to start working at a non entertainment company, but creating content for the web that was supposed to be what they like to call engaging. They didn't like the word entertaining or funny, but you know, it's semantics. That might've actually been a challenge for you though. I'm thinking to take stultifyingly boring material and make something entertaining out of it. Maybe that was something fun for you to try. It, it, it is. And it seemed like a fun challenge when I started. And then when I started butting heads with the lawyers and butting heads with the, the, the senior executives at the companies that we had to please. 
and I found out that it was no different than the entertainment industry, you still had to deal with people who had not a shred of creativity in their bodies and wanted you to take all of the creativity and originality out of everything that you did, it became a headache. Um, we did it. I think we did it well, but it certainly had its its pressure points. Mm, yeah, well, I, at least you got it for a bit. Yeah, and it, it, it allowed me to, you know, it, from like my late, late 40s into my 50s, continue working full time. Uh, and at a certain point, uh, I was ready to to not work full time. And then I've done a few things since then that have been more things that I want to do than things that I have to do. And that's I'm very fortunate that that's the life that I can lead, lead right now. So to wrap things up, you've kind of rolled your way into politics and uh, political-based podcast. Yeah, so one of my passions has always been politics. In fact, when I was in my senior year of college, I was working at a um, the NBC News affiliate in Albany, New York, where I went to school in the newsroom. And, uh, you know, I was up for a full-time job when I graduated. It was between me and another intern there, and she got it. And had I gotten that job, I probably would be working at some radio station or some news department today. But anyways, I was always in love with news, uh, current events, and politics. And a few years ago, started a Facebook group called Open Fire Politics, where people come to discuss politics. If they don't want all of that negativity on their news feeds, they come into this group, which is where you know nobody can see it but the people, the, mem- the other members of the group. And we debate politics all day long, and it can get pretty raucous, as you can imagine. We have about 10,000 people in that group. I've read it, and yeah, um, there's some uh, strong opinions. To put, to put it mildly, strong opinions and strong personalities. But we have a lot of fun, and I've made some real-life friends online because we've gotten to know each other in these groups. And I've created a couple of other open-fire groups. There's now one called Open Fire Food and Fitness, Open Fire Entertainment, Open Fire Sex and Relationships. And so each one has its core membership and they come, you know, a few times a day or a few times a week and post something and discuss what everybody else is posting. And while I was doing that, somebody suggested doing a political podcast and a a core group of us got together, created this podcast called The More Perfect Union Podcast. And that's now over two years ago. We've done now, we just did last night our 212th episode. And we have a substantial following of viewers, excuse me, of listeners. Um, we do it weekly. Uh, it's four people who love politics. Uh, three of us are more on the Democratic liberal side. One is a former Republican who is now considers himself a conservative Democrat only because he couldn't stand being in Trump's Republican Party. So he's still essentially a Republican, but he doesn't self-identify as one because he doesn't want to be identified with Donald Trump. Um, and I hope I'm not offending anybody. But anyways, we, every week, we just recap what goes on in the world and we, we add our slant and we add a lot of humor to it. So it's a very lighthearted discussion of politics. Um, uh, we call it real debate without the hate. And, uh, we've been fortunate enough to, to build up a, a fair following. And, uh, yeah, I do that every week and I do just what you do. I, I sort of, I'm sort of the moderator, even though we're all equals on the podcast. And then they all send me their tracks, and I end up spending the rest of my Sundays putting it together. And as you know, it's one hour of recording and seven hours of editing. Oh, definitely. Now, people can find you at kevinkelton.com. That's right. Um, That's my website where I talk about – I also teach comedy writing at UCLA Extension, and I can be hired privately as well uh, to mentor people through a script or to teach them how to write their own script. Um, I do open fire politics and I hope that people will Google that and join the group and get out there and talk about everything that people are talking about in the news that you want to get your opinion out there as well. And please look for the more perfect union podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, um, pretty much all the big ones. And, uh, we would love to have more listeners. Well, fantastic. And Hey, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, 
Here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Laughter, tears, celebrities, newsmakers, anecdotes, and recipes. Wait, I was wrong. They don't do recipes. You can't hear food. Join host Randall Kenneth Jones, a man who is not the original cowboy in the village people, and announcer Susan C. Bennett, a woman who is the original voice of Siri, every week on Jones.show, a podcast so accessible, its name is a web address, www.jones.show. Hi, this is Kara Mayer-Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. 